Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show. We've been talking a lot about the Conservative leadership race and decided it's time to hear from the candidates themselves. We're in the midst of a series right now talking in depth about the policies, the visions, the platforms, the ideas, all of the things that those vying to lead the Conservative Party are really putting forward right now. And even some that they haven't put forward yet that we'll try to get out of them in the course of our discussions. Today we have Derek Sloan, the Member of Parliament for Hastings Lennox and Addington in his first term and already making waves. It is good to talk to you, Derek. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak. Thanks for having me today, Andrew. So you were you were just elected in October and now you're in the midst of this leadership race here. Was this an ambition that you had had prior to running to eventually seek the leadership and seek the premiership of the country? Well, when I got into politics, I did it for one reason, and that was because I felt that our fundamental freedoms in Canada are being eroded. Uh, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. And so I wanted to get into politics to impact that in any way that I could and to uh, do that as best as I could. When I saw the leadership race open, I thought about it very seriously and, and carefully and even prayerfully. And I felt that now was the time for me to move forward and to uh, put forward what I hope will be uh, uh, the benchmark of what a, a conservative policy should look like. Uh, including uh, rigid protections for those three freedoms I mentioned at the beginning. Is this about making a point for you and, and having those issues discussed in the race, or is this something where you're genuinely in it to win it, as the saying goes? I'm in this to win it. There's no other reason to do this, in my view. I am the third candidate to reach the uh, verified level, so I have, I'm the third candidate to have access to the list. Uh, we're, we, we're currently sending out an email to the entire list uh, some people will have received that already, and hopefully by the time uh, they watch this interview, everyone will have received their first email. So you say that you are a conservative without apology. That's been the, the slogan of the campaign. That's been the message you've been driving home. What does that mean to you? Well, I think that uh, it, there's different opinions, I suppose, on, on what conservatives should be. But I feel that oftentimes we use the media or the, the mainstream media as a litmus test of sort of what we should do and what we should say. And a lot of conservatives feel that we're compromising on that message. So uh, to me, I feel that we have to, um, we have to make sure that our plan is a conservative plan that, is, that does not compromise and then sell our message. So instead of uh, uh, looking at the media or looking at uh, uh, the public right now and saying, okay, well, what do they want to hear? And politics is, is partly about what people want to hear, but it's also about and I believe the Conservative Party needs to not be that party. I think the Liberal Party, uh, their raison d'etre is, well, what do we think people want to hear? What can we do to stay in power? And I think that the Conservatives, obviously winning has to be uh, very important to us. But we also have to say, look, what are our principles? How can we uh, take our principles and share them in a way that is compelling and that people uh, buy into? And I feel that what we typically do is we focus on a narrow subset of issues like the economy or liberal corruption, but we fail to have answers to other issues that uh, people are concerned about. When you talk about the economy as being a narrow issue, there are a lot of people that would say the opposite, that the economy and putting fiscal conservatism forward is among the most broadly appealing and ultimately most significant things that a conservative party can do. So how do you view that as a narrow subset of conservatism? Yeah, so, so even when you take a look at how we address the economy, it's in a narrow way. 
Okay. So obviously the economy uh, overall is important. But if you look at the messaging in the last election, it was basically this. Hey, we'll save you a couple hundred bucks if you vote for us. If you put your kids in soccer, if you, you know, we have this thing that'll save you 200 bucks. We have this thing that'll save you 150 bucks. It was a, it was a competition for gimmies. Who can give the most? Who can save you the most? So we, we didn't. We had a lot of goodies, but we didn't even have some of these sort of broad-based tax reform ideas that a uh, fiscal conservative would have even wanted. I, I don't even know of fiscal conservatives that would have been super uh, enthralled with our messaging in the last campaign. Obviously, they would have preferred us to the liberals. They would have assumed that we would uh, you know, uh, treat the public purse with more respect. But I don't think there was any fiscal conservatives that were doing somersaults or cartwheels uh, with the messaging in the last election. So what are some of those... I'd say hardline, for lack of a better term, or bolder fiscal proposals that you would want to see? Well, we haven't actually, so we haven't released uh, our fiscal platform yet, so I'll I'll speak in broad strokes, but uh, it involves broad-based tax reform and simplification. And that's uh, that's a necessity. I mean, we need to make sure that we are actually reducing the tax burden on middle-class Canadians, and, and frankly, all Canadians, but the middle class is usually unable to avoid taxation, uh, uh, unlike uh, people in higher tax brackets have different abilities to be able to move assets to different jurisdictions and so on. But we need broad-based tax reform because our tax rates are not competitive with the United States. And so to boost the entrepreneurship and, and, and the capital formation and the business formation that we want, we do need to have uh, broad-based tax reform. What are the things that because you ran as a conservative in this election that you're saying wasn't really adequately putting a conservative message forward. What were the things that you would say the conservative party has typically done very well? The things that in the current party, as it stands, you're proud to stand with? Well, you know what? I think we actually fought a very good election and we followed conventional wisdom to the T, which is, you know, avoid avoid controversial issues, focus on the economy, and sort of keep it simple. You know, keep it simple, focus on the economy and focus on liberal corruption. So I think we ran a very disciplined campaign. I think we ran a very uh, um, hardworking campaign. All the candidates uh, worked very hard. We knocked on a lot of doors. I think we were just afraid to branch beyond that. So we need to, we need to lead with a big vision. And there were, there were some things that were, be, were starting to become visionary in our plan, like the energy corridor, I think, uh, was that type of visionary idea. But we have to lead with a vision, not lead with, uh, I'm going to save you 200 bucks if you put your kids in soccer. So you reject that conventional wisdom, though, you had said I earlier. Do. I do. Yeah. So it was a safe campaign, but you think that there is a problem with the premise that that is a positive. Yes. Well, we did everything right. And, and, yeah. and again, and still I lost. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, here's the thing. Yeah. Prior to the election, maybe that would have been a good idea. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. But I think and I hope that we've learned from that election that playing it super safe and working really, really, really hard doesn't always pay dividends in politics. You have to buck the trend. You have to buck the narrative. You have to lead with the vision. You have to be willing to talk about all issues that people are concerned with. And you have to be, you have to have answers for everything. That's what governing parties do. And that's what we need to do as well. One of the things that I've spoken about in the past, and I know you've seen this directly, is that 
the Andrew Scheer social conservative problem, what Peter McKay calls an albatross, what a lot of people in the Conservative Party derided, was really the worst of both worlds because he was backing away from, from a lot of the things that he had said previously in the election, but still getting hit for being the social conservative and pushing forward this. And, and I guess it goes two ways because on one hand you could say, okay, if you're going to get hit with it, you, if that's who you are, you as might as well be it and you as might as well own it. But the flip side of that is that we saw firsthand the hostility that the media has towards uh, people that have those beliefs. You've been, in your own words, without apology about them. You've uh, received uh, very prominent support from social conservative groups. It's a part of who you are. But do you think that that is something that needs to be addressed by way of a strategy? Or do you think it's just about saying, this is who I am, take it or leave it? It is about owning it. And it's also about realizing that the, the media narrative is not necessarily reality. So, you know, I was at a, uh, an event this morning and I was speaking with a variety of uh, individuals from uh, the minority community. And, uh, you know, they were telling me that people in their, in their groups typically vote liberal, but the bulk of them by far, and they've, they've looked into this and they've done even surveys, are socially conservative. So being, at least having something to say, I mean, you know, we, 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 we need to be careful how we address all issues, but having something to say can actually give us an avenue to break into other groups. And, and what the conservatives are always trying to do is, is trying to broaden the window of support, because we know that almost no matter what we do, there's a certain percentage of people who will, who will always vote for us. But we say, look, we need to move into the middle territory a little bit. So having something to say, uh, and you know what? So, so saying that you're pro-life, so saying, hey, these are my beliefs, but I promise I won't do anything about it, sends the wrong message to both groups of people. The, the one side aren't going to believe you anyways. And the people that yeah. hope that you're going to stand up for their values are going to say, well, that's not standing up for my values. So I think that's, I think that's what happened in this last election. But I think that having something reasonable to say on, on a variety of these issues, uh, you know, and to take abortion for an example, we, you know, we, we're the only Western country, we're the only developed country that has zero laws on abortion. Most people don't even know that. Mm -hmm. So to say, hey, I'm okay with Parliament being able to do its work, with people to bring forward bills and have a discussion on this, I think that's a message that can sell. I think that puts us on the side of uh, you know, common sense and reality uh, and makes the other parties who are bending over backwards to, to retain the legal vacuum that we have looks, will look silly. I think that's a great example of where, to use your words, the media narrative and the public narrative can really diverge because most people don't know, you're correct, that there is zero limit on abortion. Most people, I don't think, know that there is zero limit on sex-selective abortion, by, by example, in very late trimester. And all of that, I, I think, is very fair. And if you are to bring up these issues, it really is seen by the media differently than I think the general public would. But I guess it gets back to the question of, is it worth that fight for you? Is it worth that fight to raise those issues when it means that no one will listen to what you say about tax reform, when it means no one will listen to what you say about the energy policy and all of these other files? Well, here's the thing. I don't think if Peter McKay was running the party in this last election that we would have won. Okay? If a pro, you know, if someone who, now, it's, it's going to, no matter what, no matter who wins, they will either focus on somebody else or, or, or they'll raise the bar in such a way that Peter McKay or whoever can't comply. So yes, he's saying he's pro-choice. He's saying a few things. They will always find something else. They will find some other hoop that he needs to jump through that he either won't or if he does, will fracture his support in another area. So we're never safe for, from the litmus test that they put on us. 
Secondly, even if he somehow manages to pass through every litmus test, which would probably alienate us from a variety of people in our own base, if he somehow turns out to be the media darling, they'll just focus on somebody else. So maybe Peter McKay's okay, but they'll start talking about the other members in caucus that are pro-life, or the, and there's many of them. So it doesn't matter who you elect. They will make that the election issue every single time. And, you know, Andrew Scheer did everything in his power to avoid the issue, and they brought it up anyways. And people will say, oh, he didn't have the right answers, or he had those beliefs. Mark my words, you pick somebody else who has different beliefs, they will do it anyways. No matter what we do, they will put those litmus tests on us. So we need to stand up and say, I don't care what you're going to do. We're going to stand anyways and go directly to the people, and the people will see through it. Does your conservative party, your ideal conservative party that you'd like to forge as leader, take form as a pro-life party or as a party with pro-lifers? Well, here's the thing. Uh, my, I've never said that I would whip the vote in the direction that I want it to. Uh, my whole point has been, look, MPs need to be free to represent their own values and their own constituents according to their conscience. So um, I think the party will probably always have a variety of different views in it, and I'm okay with that. And, and it's, it's the other people that are not okay with that, but I'm fine with that. I don't, I don't feel the need to uh, force somebody else to vote against something that they don't want to. That's, that's not what a leader should do. And we saw, I think, that divide, uh, certainly in the last couple of weeks with Richard de Carry, uh, at the time a contender for the leadership of the Conservative Party, disqualified by the party, uh, and rather than go home, has endorsed you. And you've actually welcomed that endorsement. And I'm curious if you could explain that, because there, there's a, certainly a political risk there in campaigning alongside someone that your party has said, we don't want anything to do with. Well, we don't know the reasons why he was uh, not allowed to continue. We can only uh, speculate. And, and Richard himself doesn't know. He, he got an email that said, sorry, you're, you're disqualified. So we can only speculate. And there's, there's different rumors abounding. And the Globe and Mail has written uh, some articles on uh, initially uh, uh, a leak said, oh, it was about something private. And then they found out that no, in fact, they hadn't asked him any private questions. So we don't really, we don't know what the reason is that he was disqualified, but he was disqualified. Uh, it could have been, for example, uh, maybe, uh, maybe there were some people who thought he would do well in Quebec and that concerned them. Uh, so there, there seems to be so, something going on behind the scenes that's not entirely fair. And, uh, you know, we don't, we don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. But uh, it does seem unusual to me that he was not allowed to proceed. And I'll tell you, a lot of people were upset by that. And not just people in Quebec. There's people uh, out west, there's people all across the country that were upset by that. And the party sent the wrong message. You really need to let the race progress. And uh, even if you don't want somebody to run, you need to let the base have their say. And I think it was a mistake what they did. You had said on social media recently, I can't remember the exact day, that it's time to cancel, cancel culture in the CPC. So you weren't talking about general social and cultural cancel culture, but a, a culture that you said permeates within the Conservative Party. And I, I don't know whether you were talking about Dick Harry specifically or, or a broader issue, but uh, the point stands, if you're not the leader of the Conservative Party in the next few months. Could you be a part of that party still that has what you've identified as this toxic culture within it? Yeah, you know, and I should be fair to the Conservative Party as well, because I, you know, I hear, I speak to all sorts of people, and there's some people that say, well, you know, the Conservative Party is, is beyond repair. And I say, no, the Conservative Party is not nearly 
there's not nearly as much of a cancel culture in the party as there is in society as a whole and some other segments. The party is, by and large, filled with good people. Now, uh, it, and again, I don't believe there's some conspiracy. I believe that there's some people who uh, I would disagree with and, and acted unfairly uh, in terms of not allowing Richard to proceed. But overall, the party is, is filled with good people, although there are people in the party uh, that feel that those who have you know, socially conservative views or other views don't belong and need to be pushed out. Uh, if they do that, the party will never win. And they, will, and they will never retain uh, dominance as a government. But having said that, I'm very proud of the party. And I believe that, you know, not only can we make improvements, we can be great and we can be the dominant force in the political sphere in this country. And I encourage everybody to come on board and do not, uh, do not think that uh, our best days are behind us. Our best days are in front of us. I am positive of that. With everything we've seen in the last six months, from the election to the uh, post-mortem of the election to the way Andrew Scheer was treated uh, after the election, do you think that the big blue tent is still a viable uh, idea, this idea of red Tories, blue Tories, libertarians, social conservatives, fiscal conservatives? Do you think that it's still uh, practical that all of those people can come together under one banner? Yeah, and you know, in all fairness, maybe this is uh, controversial, it's not, it's not us, it's not social conservatives that are trying to push other people out of the party. Uh, I, don't, I don't know of an example of a red Tory seat being targeted, by example. For example, you know, we, we, see, uh, we see different nomination contests where it's very clear that social conservatives are, are being targeted. So as far as I'm concerned, the party should and can be open to anybody. And I have no problem with, with anybody being involved in the party. And I think that, uh, I think that it's not us that is that is driving that narrative it's other people and i have uh, and I have, I have nothing nothing to say further other than that all conservatives are, would be welcome in a party run by me and nobody would be target, targeted or penalized it would be free votes it would be free discussion and no uh, behind the scene uh, behind the scene machinations and arm twistings and things like that Let's talk about the Conservative Party that you want. So fast forward, you're successful as leadership candidate. You are the leader of the Conservatives. You're the leader of the official opposition. What's the top priority for you as opposition leader? Well, I think that we, well, I think that we need to establish our brand going into the next election. So we need to start messaging on issues, uh, the traditional conservative issues in a big and bold way, and then other issues as well. So we need to have bold answers for uh, housing, like affordable housing. And I, and I mean that in, in two contexts. I mean that in the context of the rising prices in the GTA and other areas, and also, you know, traditional affordable housing for, for low-income people. So that's just an example of an, an issue in the GTA right now and, and in BC that's huge. We need to have a good conservative answer for that, and we can. So we need to start messaging on some of these other issues that are not traditionally conservative, but as a governing party, you need to have answers for all of these issues. I would also be sure to uh, uh, put forward a framework that is uh, very robust from a free speech and a, and a freedom of conscience uh, perspective. And we also need to start reaching out across the country. So we need to start reaching out in different uh, constituencies, uh, reaching out to First Nations, reaching out to uh, all the groups that make Canada what it is. And that would be what we need to start doing from day one. What's your first opposition bill or your first opposition motion? Uh, well, you know what? That's a good question, and I uh, I don't uh, I don't have an answer for you on that. But uh, I think what would need to happen is we get together as a caucus 
and we decide our priorities together. I'm going to be putting forward what I feel is, is a good platform for the party, and I hope that people buy into that. Uh, but once you're a leader of the party, you need to uh, lead with caucus uh, behind you and beside you, uh, not just from the top down. And that's, uh, that's my plan should I become leader. Let's talk a little bit about the free speech aspect. I think we touched on it within the party context, but from the perspective of Canadian policy, are there areas where you think the federal government could actually uh, do a better job on, on free speech? And I, I know that for the benefit of listeners that might not know and viewers, you were involved in the Trinity Western case where the Supreme Court very much sided against conscience rights. But what are some things that as leader you could champion? Well, that's a good question. So we're going to be looking at the Canadian Human Rights Act. We, we, I've already said that I'm going to be uh, repealing Bill C-16. So that, is sort of, that, w- that became the, the epicenter of the discussion on free speech recently. That was uh, how Jordan Peterson rose to fame. He was talking about the compelled speech issue behind C-16. So I think, uh, I think right now that the nexus of sort of the free speech uh, there's, there's obviously an educational component. Universities can be hostile towards free speech. So there is, there is elements of, hey, you want federal funding? We need to see X, Y, Z from you on this when it comes to universities. Uh, there's also issues right now with the human rights tribunals, both provincially and, and federally. So federally, obviously, you can control what the Canadian Human Rights Act does and, and how the, the tribunal adjudicates. We will have to work with provinces as well to say, look, this is what we need to see. And uh, there's different ways of, of suggesting and encouraging that. But those are, those are the, the main issues. But what we don't want to see, and, and I've seen some human rights tribunal cases coming out that are basically saying, it, I think in the average person's view, d- discriminating against somebody is how you treat them. It's not your personal views on moral subjects. And what I've, what I've seen in some human rights cases is, not that you know, a person has denied somebody else a service in, in like a discriminatory under the law uh, type of situation. It's that they have uh, uh, shared essentially moral views on certain issues. And sharing moral views on certain issues uh, cannot be discriminatory. Um, that is, that, that's getting scary, right? Like if, if we're saying, look, your very view. You're not advocating that that person should not have access to the basic rights of life. You're, basic, you're expressing a moral view on something, and that in and of itself is discriminatory and amounting to hate conduct towards somebody. So that is, uh, that is scary and frightening, and that is happening primarily within the human rights context. And so that's where our focus needs to be. You mentioned C-16. This was an issue where the Human Rights Act and the Criminal Code were amended to include gender identity. It didn't change the fundamental nature of those human rights commissions. It added an additional protected ground to ones that are already there, like race, sexual orientation. Would you go after those commissions and those provisions themselves? Or is it just that gender identity addition that troubles you well we're going to be looking at we're going to be looking at the entire act and we're going to be focusing on looking at ways to potentially amend it to make sure that freedom of speech and freedom of conscience are the framework for those acts the issue with the human rights tribunals is that they are uh, often run by people who are very activist in nature and they make up their own policies and sort of how they uh, adjudicate on these issues and so the issue that you know jordan peterson and others raised is that if you look at uh, some of the language of the provincial uh, 
commissions and how they adjudicate on these issues. It was very clear that, for example, using the wrong, wrong pronouns could likely amount to an infringement. So we need to make sure that nobody, of course, wants anybody to be bullied or harassed or, or any of these things. But we also want to make sure that we are not uh, forcing certain views on the, member of the po- uh, on the members of the population. That is something that comes from a totalitarian background. It is something that should be foreign and alien to Canada. So we need to make sure that, yes, people are able to uh, you know, interact in society and um, uh, receive the basic services. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we can force people against their will to affirm people in every single way that they want to be affirmed. And, you know, if, uh, if I want to be affirmed in a certain way, uh, you know, I can negotiate that between you and I in a relationship. But there may be certain things that you just do not want to affirm me in, and that's your right. And I don't believe the weight of the government should be forcing your hand in that way. So we need to make sure that the human rights uh, adjudication has free speech and freedom of conscience as a fundamental guiding principle. And I don't believe that's the case right now. I know one of the things the Liberals were in the process of doing before the election and we think are probably going to pick up now is bringing back that section of the Canadian Human Rights Act, Section 13, that caused so many of these uh, cases where the heavy hand of government censorship was going after people. And I don't think I need to ask, but I will give you the opportunity. There's no Section 13 in your view of the human rights laws in Canada. That's correct. What is it that you'd like to see to push back against the efforts, and it may be culturally rather than politically, but to push back against those efforts that are advocating that. Because it's not just federal, it is provincial as well. And I will note that even when Stephen Harper was in power and had the ability to appoint human rights commissioners and human rights commission uh, tribunal members, we still saw these cases going down under that. So the institutions are worse than, I think, the government overseeing them. Yes, and, and it's, you're right, it's a thorny issue. It's not something that can be solved in a day. But you, you lead from the top, and you're right, it's more than just passing the right laws. It's about creating a cultural change. And for that, we need to win not just once, but many times. And we need to follow through with, with appointing the right people in the right places and, uh, and in being in dialogue with the provinces to, to encourage the right sorts of changes. And with all the conservative premiers that we have right now, it's a perfect time for that. What are the issues that you think need to be talked about more but aren't? Well, look, we have to, so from a conservative perspective or just generally in society? I'd or? say it's both. I think yeah. that if you go with the societal route, it would be issues where you think the conservative perspective is the answer to them. But yeah. I'll uh, go dealer's choice. You can go with within the party or outside of the party. Right. So, you know what? We have a lot of issues right now that people are concerned about. And uh, so, so, for example, I'll, I'll name some. So we have... Uh, we, ha- we have an issue right now where people are just disengaging from society. So we have uh, people, you know, chronic drug use, whether it be prescription or, or otherwise. We have, uh, you know, issues with housing shortages, health care. Now, again, these aren't the only issues facing Canadians. But, but if we cede territory to the Liberals on that, the only thing we're going to see is uh, wasteful socialist uh, solutions to these. So we need to make sure that we are taking a look at sort of uh, the... the uh, the malaise that we're seeing in society right now. We're, we're seeing people dropping out. We're seeing, uh, you know, when, when I, I, I speak to, uh, I go to a lot, lots of events where I'm speaking to, to, to people who are older, you know, 60, 70 and older. And I say, you know, when you, were, when you were younger, was there this many people on, you know, disability and, you know, living in their parents' basements when they're 30 and, and this and that and, and the other? And they're like, no, 
Like it just, it wasn't a thing. Like, yeah, maybe there was like a couple of people here and there, but there's something culturally right now that is causing people to drop out. And we need to tap in to, uh, you know, the Canadian, uh, the Canadian heart and the Canadian soul. And we need to say, look, we need to get these people back on track. We need to bring them back into the economy. And um, that's gonna, that's gonna require innovation from us. It's gonna require heart and soul. But we need to do that because when we let the Liberals and the NDP try to do it, it's more taxes, more programs, more government personnel. So we need to make sure that we're doing it and we need to make sure that, that, that we're the ones driving that change. Are there any Justin Trudeau policies, liberal policies from 2015 that you think the Conservatives need to make a priority of undoing, of reversing, apart from the carbon tax? I think everyone's on board with that. Yeah, I mean, broadly. Yeah, I mean, I mean most, most of the major bills they brought in, I disagree with. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, the firearms legislation, if you look in, you know, so C-71, C-69, C-48, uh, all of these bills are, are, are damaging. I mean, the bills they're introducing, the bills they just introduced the last uh, couple of weeks, you know, or weeks and months, C7, C8. These bills are, uh, you know, overbroad. They're, I mean, when you take a look at the, uh, this, the uh, energy, the, the C69 and the C48, they're, they're crippling the energy industry. They're, they're uh, causing the pullout of all these um, uh, foreign investments because Canada is not seen as a, a stable place to do business. People don't know, is my project going to get approved? If it, if it is approved, when will it be approved? And if it is actually approved and it gets blockaded or, or protests, will anybody do anything about it? So it's putting, it's putting Canada in a terrible position for vis-a-vis investment. Uh, not being able to get the, our resources to, to tidewater is terrible. So we have to make sure that we uh, that we deal with that. And, and, you know, going after the legal gun owners, again, is not the way that you deal with the, the gun crime that we have. So basically everything they have done ha- has been from a, 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 you know, just a backwards uh, uh, perspective. And frankly, I don't like any of it. And, and I don't want to be negative on that, but I'm, I'm just not uh, where they're coming from, no matter what they bring forward, seems to, you know, have elements in there that are just downright negative. Well, there's a glimpse of what a Conservative Party led by Derek Sloan would be doing. Uh, Derek, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to chat and explain a little bit more about your vision. Thank you. And I'll just add one thing, if I can. In regards to the pipelines, I will be pulling out of the Paris Accord. We need to to make it very clear to the investment community. We are Canada first. We are behind our energy uh, sector. And that's going to be part of my platform as well. Well, there you have it. Thanks very much to Derek and all of you for tuning in as we talk to the Conservative leadership candidates here on True North. You're tuned into The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.